Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1861 or 1862, the whole nation turned to the fields of Manassas for the battles at Bull Run, to other battles everyone talked about, Antietam, Fredericksburg, Shiloh. But by 1864, the battles were continuing, yet now anonymous. Grant led his army against Lee's forces at Petersburg in a series of offensives in which men were killed just as dead, but no one knew what had happened. We'll find out what happened in Grant's fifth offensive against Lee at Petersburg when we talk to Hampton Newsom, author of Richmond Must Fall, the Richmond-Petersburg Campaign, October 1864, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters on the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But as always, not speaking for the university, not representing the history department or anyone else. And likewise, my guest will most assuredly be speaking only for himself and not for any organization with which he might in any way be affiliated That's how we always do it, and we'll do it that way tonight. Here, it is the first show of February 2017. 2017, the official year of 1,000 likes on Facebook, in which all the residents of the Internet are determined to come together and give 1,000 likes to the page Impediments of War on Facebook, 
We're now up to 782. We're getting there. Uh, so please continue to visit the page, find out what we're doing here on Civil War Talk Radio, and spam everyone you know. Tell them, go to the page and like the page. When we get to 1,000, I'll be able to talk about something else, and we'll all like that. Well, since the last show, good things have happened. Uh, last week, I moaned about uh, the sore back that comes with age. This week, I'm feeling much better anticipating the uh, next uh, over-50 soccer tournament in Wilmington, North Carolina. I'll keep you posted on that. In the meantime, I had a wonderful visit back to the uh, ancestral homeland of Detroit, uh, where I got to see the number one fan of Civil War Talk Radio, my mother, who listens live every week, even though Wheel of Fortune is on at the same time. I appreciate uh, winning out over Pat Sajak. Thanks, Mom, for everything, as always. Uh, When I flew out of Detroit, I did not see any protesters uh, Monday evening, but uh, the world, even now, is still trying to figure out just what the the government is up to with uh, the various executive orders we've seen in the last week. I will not comment on these because it's not a political show, but since it's a historical show, I will reference something Abraham Lincoln said to Joshua Speed, his best friend in 1855. Uh, Speed had written Lincoln a letter asking if he was still what he could be if he was no longer a member of the Whig Party. The Whigs had disintegrated by 1855, and Lincoln uh, said he thought he was still a Whig, and when Speed asked him uh, by mail, "Are, are you a know nothing now? Lincoln replied, I am not a know-nothing. That is certain. How could I be? How can anyone who abhors the oppression of Negroes be in favor of degrading classes of white people? Our progress in degeneracy appears to me to be pretty rapid. As a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it, all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it will read, All men are created equal, except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to this, I should prefer emigrating to some country where they make no pretense of loving liberty. To Russia, for instance, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of hypocrisy. More than 140 characters there, so too big for a tweet, but we'll leave it at that. Back here in Greenville, North Carolina, the big event coming up this week, one that I anticipate eagerly each year, is the annual public library used book sale fundraiser. Uh, When I was in graduate school and uh, first working, I always, of course, wanted to buy books, but budget was a problem, so uh, used book sales were always a place to go. Now I'm at the point in my career where space is at a higher premium. I have filled uh, too many shelves with Civil War and other history books. I really should care less about cost than about where am I going to put the next book. But I cannot resist going to the used book sale every year and bringing home a grocery bag full of used history books, some of which I will actually read in the following year. Uh, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to be first in line tomorrow night and bring home uh, more books that I that uh, maybe we'll even talk about on this show. And speaking of books, if you go to 
impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War Talk Radio website. You can see the books that we talk about on the show, including tonight's book. And if you click on a picture of the book cover, it will take you immediately to Amazon, uh, the Amazon page for that book, and you can buy the book there. And by getting to Amazon via Impediments of War, that contributes uh, some, some pennies to the website. There is no separate button that actually says Amazon on it, as I may have said in the past. Uh, that's the kind of mistake that I make dealing with technology. It's why Mark Gaffney, who runs the website, keeps me away from the gears and switches that operate it and says, just do the show. Uh, so there's no Amazon button. Just go to the book itself, and that'll take you there. You'll also, while you're there, find out who's coming up next on the show next week, April, April. Next week, February 8th, we've got George Rabel, author of Damn Yankees, with an exclamation point. So we'll have a fervent hour of conversation. On the 15th, Chuck Rosh joins us for Imperfect Union, a father's search for his son in the aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg. And we've got a listener suggestion on the 22nd, Christopher Phillips, who has a book about the Civil War in the middle part of America. Next up, uh, March 1st, Andrew Bledsoe, a book that just came into the office recently, Citizen Officers, the Union and Confederate Volunteer Junior Officer Corps in the Civil War. Looks very interesting. We'll take a break after that. March 8th will be spring break here at East Carolina. I will be sipping drinks with umbrellas in them. Uh, no, actually, I won't be doing that. I will be staying right here in the office, but uh, not doing the show that week. And then on March 15th, Carol Reardon, who I have asked to be on the show for, I think, seven years now, finally broken her resistance, and she's, she'll be with us. We'll talk about her many works uh, as she uh, is preparing to retire soon and a distinguished career as a military historian. So lots coming up. Uh, check it out at the website. You can find the button that says donate click on that takes you to paypal you can contribute to civil war talk radio the money that could be spent on the used books at the sale support the shepherd public library here in greenville north carolina i'll take your money i'll buy books i'll bring them home Uh, emily will look at me and say where do those books go and i will not be able to answer her but she has almost as many books in her field, so I I can't complain. She can't complain. We're even. The donations are not tax-deductible. Let's be clear about that. Uh, Could use the money for anything. But let's not talk about those books. Let's talk about Richmond Must Fall by Hampton Newsom. It is the book uh, we're discussing tonight, and the author, we hope, is on the line with us. Hampton, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, and I'm glad your back is feeling better. Um, uh, I hope you get out on the pitch soon. I'm also a soccer player, but I haven't been out on the field for about a decade, and I actually have some cleats in my Amazon cart, and I keep thinking I'll click on them, but then I think, well, maybe that's a really bad idea, so I don't know. I I totally relate to that. I the, the pair that I wear to play in are held together with duct tape. They're completely falling apart. But each time I think, well, just buy yourself a new pair. I think, why? You know, this is my last season. I'm never going to play again after this. And I keep putting it off. I'm afraid I'll jinx it. If I buy the new pair, I'll wreck my knee the next game. <laughs> uh, 
But let me ask you uh, to turn uh, to to a different topic altogether, uh, uh, but a, a game or competition. Your name first came to my attention in the late 1990s when there was a uh, a small company that produced war games or games on battles of the Civil War, Ivy Street Games. Uh, that I gather you it was your your creation. You were That's the designer right. of a series of games on fairly small battles like Williamsburg or Bethesda Church. These games were highly regarded by aficionados of, of Civil War battle games. And then Ivy Street games disappeared, the games disappeared, you disappeared from the, the, the internet, and then showed up again in 2013 with this wonderful book, Richmond Must Fall. But your games are unobtainable. Uh, on, on eBay, they are listed for hundreds of dollars. I don't think anyone pays that, but uh, it means nobody has them. What, what happened to Ivy Street Games? I, well, I, I, um, I guess it just, I got tired of the, I love the design part of, of making these, the, those games. You, you research the, the event that you're trying to simulate, and you're trying mm-hmm. to create a, a game that people will want to play that's also informative and also provides a reasonable simulation of you know the battle or whatever but uh mm-hmm. for me the uh the business part was really a grind um and just uh I, I they were all desktop published these weren't you know um really fancy games or anything like that mm-hmm. and I just kind of uh, closed up shop, and I felt like I had kind of scratched that itch and uh, moved on. And occasionally, I see people will will talk about them, and uh, you know, and and that's that's great. Um, but uh, you know, I I moved on to research and writing and that kind of thing. Well, they I thought they really did reflect uh, a very perceptive view of of the mechanics of Civil War battles and and what. What the inputs were that that the generals faced when they made their decisions. Uh, there are there are a lot of games out there, and some of them are pretty pretty weak. And, and yours were very uh, thought provoking. So, uh, well, thanks. But so so is this book. Let me ask. Let me go back to a bigger question. Uh, what got you into Civil War study in the first place? Well, I guess um, you know it's kind of a, a lifelong affliction. I, I was. Um, one of those kids that had the uh, the American uh, uh, heritage book that mm-hmm. had those uh, wonderful maps in them and and uh, would spend hours looking at them. I I had a subscription to Civil War Times Illustrated, um, and I grew up in Richmond. And my uh, my parents are from North Carolina, and so the the places that uh, you know involved the the war were all around me. Um, and, uh, you know, in high school and college and graduate school, I kind of put it aside, but, um, but started up again when I, you know, had, had more time outside of school to actually do some, some reading and just started devouring, uh, uh, books again about the Civil War. Um, and that's kind of how it started, I guess. Now, you picked a topic for this book, the, uh... The the Richmond Petersburg campaigns the subtitle, but then it says October eighteen sixty four. 
it, it reminds me of uh, Richard Summers' book, Richmond Redeemed. Uh, both books are about the, the famous Richmond Petersburg campaign that every Civil War student has heard of. But when you look a little closer, it turns out that uh, both Summers' book and yours are just about events within a single month and really a few days within uh, a month of this long siege campaign. Mm-hmm. What what brought you to such a specific and, and I'll say, obscure topic? So I guess, um, you know, like uh, probably most of your listeners, I my house is full of books. I've always been interested in the Eastern campaigns and, um, and uh, so Gettysburg and the Overland campaign and Chancellorsville and all that. And uh, sometime in the 90s, I guess, I picked up Andy Trudeau's book, The Last Citadel, and read it. And this is, this is a single-volume treatment of the Petersburg campaign. And, um, and I just, I, it, it really, I, I, I knew about the Petersburg campaign and the battles that happened outside Richmond in 1864 and 1865. Kind of, I kind of knew about them, but, you know, I'd heard the names. But I had no idea what a fascinating web of events it was. It, it's this 11-month campaign and within it, you've got essentially, you know, nine more or less um, campaigns within that campaign. And in particular, I got to the chapter on the the battles in October 1864, right before the presidential election. And um, and I really had not heard of them before Bur- Burgess Mill uh, down uh, southwest of Petersburg on October 27th and. Uh, the uh, 18th Corps attack on the Williamsburg Road uh, the same day, and just the um, very, to me, very interesting engagements. And uh, I decided to do some digging, you know, to do a little bit of research, see what I could find, what people had written. There were a couple of articles here and there. And, well, uh, we're going to take, let me interrupt you, we'll take a short sure. break now, come back and find out what you found out about these battles in October 1864. We're talking tonight with Hampton Newsom, author of Richmond Must Fall, the Richmond-Petersburg Campaign, October 1864. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Hampton Newsom, author of Richmond Must Fall, the Richmond-Petersburg Campaign, October 1864. It's the story of Grant's sixth offensive in the Petersburg campaign, not the fifth offensive, as I said in the introduction or the first segment uh, in a momentary uh, lapse of concentration, lest I give the impression I didn't actually read the book, which I did and enjoyed thoroughly. Uh, one of the, as, as we were talking at the very end of the segment, you pointed out this was a, something you didn't know a whole lot about, and that helped prompt you to study it, that one of the great things about this book, I thought, was uh, was just that. As a Civil War student, if you read a Gettysburg book, you know how it's going to end. You know what the details are going to be. But when you're reading this book, you're wondering, how far are they going to get? How, how is this going to work out? Who's going to make a mistake? Because the details aren't known to everyone, uh, and, and they're beautifully laid out in this, in this book. Uh, one more thing, uh, listeners, get yourself a map of the Richmond Petersburg campaign uh, for the rest of the show so you can follow along at home uh, pause your podcast uh, dig up a map, go online get a simple one, it'll do and then come back and that'll help you uh, follow what we're talking about with that in mind uh, Hampton, could you set the stage where where things are in October 64 when, this, when your book begins? Sure so um uh, the so in in October you've got Grant with two armies essentially uh, the Army of the Potomac and the Army of the James under Meade and Benjamin Butler um, and uh, outside of Richmond and Petersburg on along a very very long line uh, about thirty five miles of trenches um, Lee is. Uh, defending Richmond and Petersburg, and this has been going on since June. Um, uh, after the Overland Campaign, the the armies find themselves outside Petersburg, um, and you know you can certainly be forgiven for mixing up the fifth and sixth offensive <laughs> because it's it's a it's a very complicated campaign. The the Petersburg campaign or the Richmond Petersburg campaign, however you want to call it. Um, every month or so, beginning in June, 
Grant tries to either take Petersburg or take Richmond or extend his lines and launches an offensive. And these are generally pretty large operations, um, uh, core size at least, sometimes much larger than that. Um, so by October, you've had five offenses, and one of them was the crater, which most people know about. But there are also um, efforts in August to uh, extend the Union lines uh, around Petersburg, uh, across the, the railroad that runs um, south, the Petersburg Railroad, or it's often called the Weldon Railroad. Um, and then in September, you've got an offensive that, uh, that is launched both at Petersburg and Richmond. Um, during that, Union forces gain a key stronghold on the um, Confederate lines up at Fort Harrison. Um, so you're going into October with uh, Union forces having gained some ground um, over the summer. But uh, most importantly um, to me in terms of the background is that the, the presidential election is coming up in November. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this is, this is you know, a very important um, event in the war. By October, things are looking pretty good for Lincoln, but certainly back in August, they were not looking good. And uh, he's running against McClellan, and if McClellan wins, uh, there are lots of question marks about what will happen with the war effort. Uh, the Democrats have a, a peace platform. Um, McClellan's not quite, uh, doesn't quite buy into that, but it's a little unclear what's going to happen if McClellan wins. But the capture of Atlanta, Mobile Bay, the Sheridan's activities in the Valley um, help to kind of shore up Lincoln's support. So going into October, things are looking good, but they're by no means certain. And uh, in a nutshell, what happens in October and what's covered in my book is a, a small offensive by uh, Lee in early October trying to uh, recapture Fort Harrison. Um, and that's often called uh, Johnston's Farm, New Market Road, uh, Darbytown Road. There are lots of different names for it, but that happens on October 7th. Uh, then there's um, a Union reconnaissance, a very bloody affair on October 13th. And then near the end of the month, you have a very large Union offensive on October 27th, um, just a few days before the election. And uh, Grant um, decides to launch that offensive then. Now, he's taking a chance because if it is uh, a huge, bloody disaster, this could affect the voting for Lincoln. But he thinks he has an opportunity for success if he attacks both ends of Lee's line, the north end north of Richmond and the south end south and west of Petersburg, uh, 35 miles apart. What, um, well, one question is, how does, where does he get troops to do this? If he's got 35 miles of trenches to occupy, how does he also have troops to launch flank attacks at, simultaneously at both ends? Well, that, that's a good question. And, and he, he is, when you look at the correspondence in the middle of the month, he is, um, he, he consults with his, um, his chief engineer, um, Barnard, and, um, and the, the engineer writes a memo that says, 
I don't really think we can we can do much right now with what we've got. What we really need is a is a column of forty thousand men, and uh, we we don't really have that at the moment. And so, the thinking is that they will wait for to get troops from Sheridan in the valley, and Sheridan's tangling with um, early at that time in in, in the valley. Um, but what happens is that uh, um, Cedar Creek, the Battle of Cedar Creek occurs. Sheridan beats Early there soundly, and this seems to motivate Grant. And he goes out into the lines with Meade out, out to the, the western end of the line, looking over the, the Confederate lines, and they, they, they go look around, and he comes back that evening and issues orders to to uh, for me to draw plans for an offensive in a couple of days, and what Meade does is he canvasses his corps commanders and asks them, "Well, how many men can you leave in the trenches?" And they all send back their their tallies, and um, magically the number of troops available for this uh, offensive turns out to be forty thousand, and so um, they feel like they can protect the. Uh, the works that they have, and launch this um, column around Lee's right flank at Petersburg. I, I found it interesting to realize how how small the Army of the Potomac had become by that time. We're accustomed to thinking of, of Grant as having an overwhelming number of men and wearing down the Confederates. But by this point in the campaign, with all the losses Grant has had, he doesn't have an unlimited number of men. And, and as you portray, he's scraping around to get enough troops to launch a flank attack. But Lee is also finding troops to fill out his ranks. And, and one of the, the, you describe how he rounds up civilians and people from the rear areas. Uh, there's also some use of slaves in the uh, Confederate forces, not as soldiers yet, but, but they start talking about that at this point, don't they? That's right. The, the, around this time is where the proposal to create um, uh, regiments in the Confederate Army um, from slaves it start, first starts kind of floating up, um, you know, as a serious matter, uh, and it doesn't doesn't really become a um, a live issue until you know the next spring. But they're talking about this at the time. Um, but there are. But what is happening is that. When there are emergencies along the along the lines at Richmond and Petersburg during the campaign, the Confederates are doing several things. One is that they're emptying out all the uh, uh, the, the the factories and the offices in Richmond, and uh, taking the the the, uh, the militia, the city battalions, and they're putting them uh, into the trenches where they need them. And they're also um, they're also impressing. Um, uh, slaves uh, from Richmond, um, from Petersburg, uh, taking people off the streets and having them uh, the, dig the trenches uh, along the line to, to help in the effort. One of the things that I also thought was, was interesting about this, uh, about your approach, is you've got the two Union Army commanders, uh, Meade with the Army of the Potomac and Ben Butler with the Army of the James, both under Grant, so it looks like one big army, but technically it isn't. Your treatment of Benjamin Butler is considerably more sympathetic than uh, <laughs> than, than Butler's usual picture. What uh, talk about that? 
That's right, and and people people mention that, uh, and I think it stands out to them. I, I'm I have to say I, I'm not you know I'm not a big fan of Benjamin Butler or anything, um, and mm-hmm. uh, and I, I'm working on a project now about North Carolina where he's also uh, uh, plays a big role. Um, but the, so so Butler is. You know, he's kind of this quintessential political general. Um, he's a blustery pre-war politician. He's also a lawyer. Um, most people view him as a, a militarily incompetent, and he's certainly arrogant and obnoxious. Um, but, you know, at the same time, he's a very smart person, and... And he's very creative. He has a lot of unconventional ideas, and some of them work and some of them don't. Um, and uh, given his kind of, uh, you know, one of his skills is that his his plans for operations are are, are very thorough and, and sound, uh, and he's a very good organizer. Um, one of the things that he does very well is uh, gather intelligence on the Confederate forces, and he kept this book where he um, he he would would um, use reports to to keep tabs on on the the Confederate order of battle in front of him, and you know, in in along the Richmond Petersburg front, um, he was also instrumental in fostering the uh, Unionist Richmond Underground, which was led by Elizabeth Van Lu. Um, a woman who lived on Church Hill there in Richmond, and uh, and did a lot of uh, incredible things during the war. Um, the other thing about Benjamin Butler is he was an untiring advocate of the black troops, um, the the uh, USCTs, and uh, unlike some other commanders, he used these men in all aspects of his operations. Um, he also ensured that they had. Uh, good medical care. Many of these men were um, self-emancipated slaves um, that had come into the Union lines in, in various uh, locations. And he also did things like provide tutoring for, for those men. So I, I think with Butler, it's good to kind of weigh the, uh, the good with the bad. Um, he certainly made his share of mistakes and ruffled lots of feathers and was uh, often an unpleasant person. But could also do some uh, some uh, impressive things. The uh, some of the things that probably led to his negative reputation in the past. Uh, so you described, for example, when uh, uh, some of his his USCT his, his African American troops are captured and then put to work by the Confederates building fortifications. That's not how you treat prisoners of war. Mm-hmm. And so he responds by putting Confederate prisoners of war to work under invulnerable places where they'll be shot at by Confederate artillery. And, uh, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, he was damned for that. But now you look at it and say, well, hey, fair is fair. If you're going to do this to our guys, we'll do it to yours. Yeah. Uh, well, that's did, it. That episode, it's an interesting window into the campaign because he, he, he learns that his men um, who had been taken prisoner are are being forced to dig the enemy's trenches, essentially. Um, and, uh, and he gets affidavits from, from deserters and that kind of thing. He sends that 
complains to the Confederates, and at the same time, as you said, he takes some Confederate prisoners and he places them under fire um, at, at the Dutch Gap, where it's a, essentially this huge construction project that is within range of, of, of Confederate batteries. Um, Lee responds and, and also orders his men to build a pen within range of the Union batteries, and it starts to escalate this, this crisis. Um, uh, eventually, there's an exchange of memos between Grant and Lee uh, that kind of diffuses the whole thing. But uh, Butler is uh, very aggressive in um, protecting the um, African-American prisoners of war. And he, he is certainly, in, in southern circles, is criticized heavily for that. But, um, you know, back in the north, there's, there are many papers that, that praise him for it. So. So he's going to command uh, the Army of the James, Meade commands the Army of the Potomac, and they're going to try to simultaneously attack both flanks, or at least explore both flanks of Lee's army, uh, of the Richmond end and the Petersburg end. But it seems to me the the fundamental uh, problem here is if Grant figures out uh, well, Meade figures out he can thin out his lines. You can just leave a thin crust of men as long as they're in prepared fortifications and trenches. They can stop pretty much any head-on attack that comes at them. So he can thin out his lines and amass a big striking force for the flank. But the same holds true on the other side. There may only be a thin crust of Confederates in these 35 miles of trenches, but they can stop any attack that comes straight at them. So the the Secret has to be how do you get around? Uh, you, by this time, Grant's figured this out. You, you don't go straight at the enemy's trenches. And so, what we'll see, it looks like we're going to take a break shortly. So, we'll, we'll set the table here for when we come back. Uh, Butler attacking around the northern flank, Meade sending three Union Corps against the southern flank of the Confederates hoping to get around where they believe the end of the Confederate line lies. If it works, they could cut the railroad to Petersburg. That could bring about the removal of Lee's army and the end of the war. We'll find out what does happen with it when we come back in just a minute, talking with Hampton Newsom, author of Richmond Must Fall, the Richmond-Petersburg Campaign, October 1864. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Talking tonight with Hampton Newsom, author of Richmond Must Fall. It is about the Richmond-Petersburg campaign of October 1864. And... We've got ourselves set up to the, uh, uh, the, the campaign itself, and I'm, I'm hearing myself in the background. Am I on a speakerphone by any chance? Uh, no. Uh, I, yeah, it okay. sounds fine to me. Okay. We'll keep going. Listeners, if soldier through, if, and we'll do our best. Um, so the two flank attacks go in. Listeners know Lee isn't going to surrender in October 1864, so we know they're not going to work. But what made this book, for me, just fascinating, and I, I want to say how much I enjoyed it. Uh, it has wonderful maps that really help you follow along with the details of the action. Uh, Meade's got three well-trained, experienced corps marching around the south end of the Confederate line. Why don't they get to the South Side Railroad. What what happens? So there are a couple of problems that come up. Um, and just to go right to the heart of it, um, so, so Grant, is, his goal is the South Side Railroad, which is the last rail line, south, at least south of the Appomattox River, that goes into Petersburg. Uh, and if he gets that, essentially um, uh, separating Petersburg from the balance of the South. The geography is very complicated around this area, but that's that's essentially what would happen. And his, as you pointed out, his he does not want to at this stage in the war. He has no desire to attack um, heavily manned entrenchments, and he's very adamant about that with Meade. He's adamant about that with with Butler um, to the north. Uh, what he really wants to do is to establish a position on the South Side Railroad, and he hopes that Lee will hit, attack him there because he knows that um, uh, 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 those kinds of attacks are just going to work against the Confederates by causing more casualties, uh, and they're very unlikely to be successful. So what he has to do to get to the South Side Railroad is get around Lee's right flank. And the the trenches at Petersburg, uh, what are called the Demick Line, uh, is uh, it's like a semicircle that um, 
attaches on either side of Petersburg along the, the river, the Appomattox River that, that Petersburg rests on. Petersburg's on the south of the river. What Lee has done is he's also created a, a kind of a spur line, a, a line of trenches that heads southwest from the southwest corner of that semicircle, and that's heading down into Denwitty County along the Boyden Plank Road, and uh, it's generally called the Boyden Plank Road Line, and it goes all the way down to a fairly substantial stream called Hatcher's Run. And so the big question for Meade and for his chief of staff, Andrew Humphreys, in designing this attack um, is, is whether that line is, is complete yet, um, because it, it's not, the Confederates have just started building it a several, several weeks before. Uh, if it's not complete, then the attack can just barrel right through there and get to the South Side Railroad on the other side. If it is complete, then the only way to get there is go, to go way south of Hatcher's Run through the Denwitty countryside and uh, make their way over to the Southside Railroad. And so with these three corps, the plan is to um, send the 5th Corps and the Ninth Corps against that Boyden Plank Road line and send the 2nd Corps under Winfield Hancock as the far flanking column to go south of Hatcher's Run. Um, and so what happens is that they attack on the, you know, the appointed day and they find that that trench line is actually, um, it's complete, it's, it's amply manned, uh, they cannot break through it and they don't really try. Uh, and then, um, Hancock's Corps makes it south of Hatcher's Run, comes all the way around behind, essentially behind those trenches on the south side of Hatcher's Run to a farm, um, owned by the Burgess family, which was actually a family from Herkimer County, New York. And, uh, and Hancock pauses there, um, Grant comes, uh, actually rides with it, and this is, this is way out away from the Union lines, and Grant and his staff go there and Meade's there, and they decide to halt the offensive there, that the offensive's not going to happen. Um, he's not going to push any, any farther. Um, so it so, seems so, that... Yes, go ahead. I'd say, so they've made, it, it's a success thus far in, in one sense. You've got the, the two holding corps, the 5th and Ninth Corps, have felt out the Confederate position. They've discovered the trenches are longer and better built than they expected, so they don't attack head-on, but they, they've got the Confederates looking at them. They've got their attention. And now here comes Hancock around, and he does go around the end at, right. at the Burgess Farm. He's, he's going all the way around, but can't go any farther, or he'll be stranded. He'll be cut off from his own lines. And that's where Grant as you say, it says, let's stop here. And at this point, reading the book, I'm thinking, okay, well, this is kind of a big fizzle. Um, Hancock stuck out there. There's been some fighting. And then they say, well, let's stop here. Let's pull back. Let's just stop here. And, and But then I look in my right hand, and there's still about 80 pages. Something else is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what does happen? So what happens is that the Confederates... Counterattack, and this is they, they follow a, a a plan, a recipe uh, that they use throughout the Petersburg campaign, and that's uh, whenever the uh, a Union force pushes out from 
its lines, essentially this large armed camp outside Petersburg, and they head west to gain ground. The Confederates push against the right flank of that attacking force and, um, and, and hit it hard. And it's usually a force led by William Mahone, who um, knows Petersburg very well and, uh, and really, um, as a combat leader, shines during the Petersburg campaign. So you see this, this pattern repeated at the, the Jerusalem Plank Road battles in June and the, the, um, the, the, the battles Happens along the... the crater. The, the, the crater, the battles along the Weldon Railroad in August, and that kind of thing. And so what happens when, when the, the alarm sounds that the, the, there's a Union offensive um, at Petersburg, A.P. Hill, who is up north, uh, outside of Richmond, far away, mm-hmm. and A.P. Hill and is essentially the commander on the ground. He's ill that day, but he, he sends out orders from his headquarters to withdraw brigades from, um, you know, the kind of the heart of the, of the line at Petersburg, and he sends William Mahone, and Mahone takes um, some of his brigades, joins them um, with a uh, brigade or two from Heath's um, division, and uh, and they go, they they march along Hatcher's Run. It's a, just a wilderness down there, very hard to know where you are. And uh, they go across a dam that's been built there by um, by by Hampton's men, and uh, and they go through the woods and appear on the Burg- on the east side of the Burgess farm where um, Hancock. Does, does not really expect anybody to be showing up there. In fact, it's supposed to be occupied there by a division from the Fifth Corps linking up with him. But here comes a three-brigade uh, Confederate attack um, uh, streaming into the, the fields of the Burgess Farm and essentially cuts Hancock's corps in two. And, uh, and it, it, things look fairly dire. Here we are two weeks before the election, this offensive that was kind of a gamble in the first place is starting to look pretty pretty bad here because um, Hancock is far away from support and now he is split in two. Um, but what happens is that Mahone simply doesn't have enough men to really sustain that attack. And he soon finds that although he's cut Hancock in two, he's really surrounded. And uh, two of his brigades, McCray's brigade, and Weisiger's brigade are essentially trapped on the Burgess farm and have to fight their way out, and they lose hundreds and hundreds of men, mostly um, as prisoners. Uh, they make it back into the woods, and they make it back across Hatcher's Run. But it's an extraordinary fight um, there on, on the Burgess farm. The Hancock wins. This is a command that has had... Uh, you know, a very rough overland campaign, losing thousands of men, and um, also does not shine during the, the Petersburg campaign. But here, Hancock's men, they really redeem themselves, and they hold up against this attack. They hold the field, and they only leave when Meade and, and Grant later tell, them, tell him to, you know, go ahead, let's withdraw and get back into the lines. So, so you've got the spectacle of, of one of Hancock's divisions really in a, in a circle, uh, fighting Confederates from all sides they to their the front. They call it the bullpen. The bullpen. They, they, they've got 
Confederates to the west, where they expect them, Confederates to the north, where they expect them, and then suddenly they're attacked from the east as well. And and then the breakthrough, now they're being attacked from all four sides, and they, they fight their way out. It's, uh, it is quite a remarkable story. And, and again, it, it really suggests to me how we know every detail, it seems, about Gettysburg or uh, Antietam. But by 64, the scale of things is so huge that we... We, we, we don't focus and, and a really remarkable battle like this can take place and it's just one of you know many offensives in the, in the campaign. Uh, we don't have a lot of time left. Let me ask the, the big interpretive question. Could this have ended differently? Uh, or is the, the defense just too strong? Uh, you know, you, Lee was, or A.P. Hill was able to do just what Meade did, leave a thin crust, detach Mahone from the trenches, march him along the uh, the the interior lines of the Confederate position and, and counterattack, the defense wins again. Uh, was there any way the North could have won this? Well, you know, all the all the uh, discussion afterwards, um, you know, looking back at it, um, the, the Monday morning quarterbacking, I guess, if you will, that went on in the Army. Well, one, one thing that was pointed out, and I think it was maybe Humphreys that pointed out, this was that the uh, the way the, the the offensive was designed, the the bulk of the Union strength was concentrated on that Boyden Plank road line, the one one that ended up being you know very very complete as it turned out, and so Hancock was really kind of you know underpowered for uh, the the column that was really supposed to. To uh, to take the railroad, so you know the, what, this, there was speculation that if if one of the if only the Ninth Corps say attacked along that trench line and Warren's Fifth Corps went with Hancock, it may have uh, uh, you know turned out differently. Um, but you know that that's kind of uh, it, it's kind of hard to tell you know what would happen. We have just a minute and a half left. What What is there to see today uh, if, if the visitor goes to these battlefields? Um, well, the battlefields are so spread out that it's uh, the, the at Burgess Mill, um, there's really no interpretation there, um, although there's some recent legislation that will add very uh, lots of um, parcels to the um, to the battlefield eventually, and I think that uh, Burgess Mill is, is slated for that. But if you drive along, it's it's fairly, um, you know, it's not that developed there, um, especially uh, over along the Boyden Plank Road line. Um, there's uh, some uh, the land there is fairly well preserved, and those Confederate trenches are there um, still. Um, and the the uh, up north, and we we didn't talk much about what happened with Butler, but the, the attack that happened that day is right there at the Richmond uh, Airport. And when you drive in, you can see the remnants of the uh, the trenches there and the markers and that kind of thing. So um, so there are there there are bits and pieces that are there, and that's kind of you know fairly common, and and that that's typical of of the of Petersburg because there were so many engagements that happened all over the place. Um, it's hard to kind of get your mind around them. Well, 
it will help you listeners to get your mind around these actions, both the one south of Petersburg and the one we didn't even scratch the surface of tonight, the, the action north of Richmond. But they're both uh, brilliantly described in Richmond Must Fall, the Richmond-Petersburg campaign, October 1864. You will want to read this book if you are interested in Civil War operations and tactics and battles at all. The author is Hampton Newsom, who's been our guest tonight. Hampton, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.